BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. It's time for Justice Matters with former federal prosecutor and MSNBC analyst, Glenn Kirchner. In today's long weekend podcast, Glenn does his usual Trump legal recap of the week and talks about grand juries and how they work. Welcome to Justice Matters. We have a full plate today, friends, and yes, much of it involves the criminal investigations and prosecutions of Donald Trump, which seem to be accelerating. They seem to be multiplying. So yes, we are going to spend some time today talking about the Trump trials. This is where we cue the Trump trials theme music. And in our deep dive segment today, we're going to take on all things grand jury. Why? Well, because not one, but two grand juries were just sworn in in Fulton County, Georgia, in connection with District Attorney Fawny Willis's criminal investigation of Trump and company. And those grand juries are hard at work as we speak, considering criminal charges for Donald Trump and his co-conspirators. And because there's been so much reporting this past week about those grand juries, not to mention other grand juries like the one in Washington, D.C., which seems to be on the cusp of indicting Donald Trump for the insurrection, we're going to do a deep dive into the nuts and bolts of grand juries. You know, for example, are they really all that grand? And will a grand jury really indict a ham sandwich? You know, my answer to that often posed question is, you're damn right a grand jury will indict a ham sandwich if that ham sandwich committed a crime. So after we finish the legal recap, we are going to turn to all things grand jury. Let's start our legal recap discussion with the topic of dueling briefs. The two briefs that were filed in federal court down in Florida in Donald Trump's documents, crimes, obstruction of justice, espionage case, you know, the one pending before Trump appointed judge Aileen Cannon. Well, Donald Trump's lawyers filed a brief that was a real piece of work. I was going to go with another word there, but I'm going to go with a piece of work. Donald Trump's lawyers said to Judge Cannon, look, Judge, don't set a trial date in this case. Vacate, that is get rid of, 
the August trial date you set previously. Do not set a December 2023 trial date, which has been requested by the prosecutors. In fact, set no trial date at all. Why do Trump's lawyers tell Judge Cannon to set no trial date? Well, for a bunch of BS reasons. You know, reasons like, oh my goodness, Judge, there's, there's so much evidence, so much information that's been given to us by the prosecutors in discovery that we're going to need months and months and months to pour through it before we can even begin to think about a trial date. Can I translate that for you? That's Donald Trump's lawyer saying, yeah, you know, our clients stole so many documents from the government, so many boxes. There's so much evidence here that we're going to need to plow through, that we're going to need lots and lots of time. I don't find that a terribly persuasive reason to set no trial date at all. Trump's lawyers also told the judge to set no trial date because they say, get this, Judge, we're going to file lots of motions, and our motions are going to be so good and so winning that you, Judge Cannon, are going to dismiss the indictment. There will be no need for a trial. You know, friends, I found that assertion absurd, demeaning, laughable. They don't even say what motions they're going to file or why they believe the motions will be so big and powerful and beautiful that Judge Cannon will just dismiss the case outright. That's an absurd thing to put in a legal pleading. And Trump's lawyers make some other unpersuasive arguments, but, but here's the one that I like best. And I'm reading now from page nine of Trump's court filing. It says, President Trump is running for President of the United States and is currently the likely Republican Party nominee. This undertaking requires a tremendous amount of time and energy, and that effort will continue until the election on November 5th, 2024. In other words, look, Judge, I'm running for President. I don't have time for your petty little federal case against me. And Trump's lawyers say, therefore, set no trial date or in the event you have to push it well beyond the November 2024 presidential election. Well, guess what, friends? Jack Smith, special counsel, had a little something to say in reply to that nonsense. I want to start by reading just a little bit of Jack Smith's opening salvo. He filed a reply to Trump's brief. He filed it on July 13th, and he started out by saying, defendants Trump and Nauda, and of course, Nauda, Walt Nauda is Donald Trump's criminal associate, his co-conspirator, his co-defendant, his body man and his main box mover, only the best people. Jack Smith says defendants Trump and Nauda claim unequivocally that they cannot receive a fair trial prior to the conclusion of the next presidential election, and they urge the court to not even consider a trial date until some unspecified later time. 
there is no basis in law or fact for proceeding in such an indeterminate and open-ended fashion, and the defendant provides none. And friends, then Jack Smith continues on page one of the prosecution filing, and he embarrasses Team Trump. He says, quote, any discussion of setting a trial date must begin with the Speedy Trial Act. That, friends, is the federal law that governs here. The very first sentence of the act forecloses defendant's proposal here because it reads, quote, in any case involving a defendant charged with an offense, the judicial officer shall set the case for trial on a date certain so as to assure a speedy trial." Close quote. So basically, on page one, sort of bleeding over onto page two, Jack Smith just eviscerates Donald Trump's demand that the judge set no trial date. And frankly, the prosecution's filing, you know, just continues for the balance of the, the 10 pages to take down, to take apart, to destroy Trump's legal filing with the court. I would urge everybody to read this 10-page double-spaced court filing from Special Prosecutor Jack Smith. It's a fast read. It's an easy read. It's a model of clarity and of brevity and of persuasion. And it makes absolutely clear that Jack Smith understands that justice is a full contact sport. He doesn't mince words. He doesn't pull punches. He calls it the way he sees it. He calls it the way it is. And this, frankly, got me even more excited looking forward to the trial because this is the way I expect Jack Smith and his team of prosecutors to proceed in the case. He's going to start punching, figuratively speaking, and he's never going to let up. And Donald Trump will be convicted. Of course, we will see how Judge Cannon handles this first consequential decision she's going to have to make. Does she cater to Donald Trump's demands that she set no trial date? which would violate the law, the Speedy Trial Act, or will she set the trial date that has now twice been requested by the prosecutors, December 11th, 2023. So, you know, Jack Smith's determination seems to be, you know, that this case be resolved well in advance of the November 2024 presidential election. Coming up after the break, FBI Director Christopher Wray has been grilled by Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee. Are they hoping to interfere with the January 6th probe because they helped Trump? We discuss this next on Justice Matters. Hi, Beowulf here with Justice Matters, and I'm here to remind you about one of the best decisions I've made recently, getting Factor Meals. Eating is so much easier for me with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor is flexible for your schedule. 
Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries at any time. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Factor is the perfect solution if you're looking for fast, premium options with no cooking required. Sign up today and save. I've done the math and I can tell you Factor is less expensive than takeout. And every meal is dietitian approved, nutritious and delicious. So what are you waiting for? Get started today and start meeting your meal and nutrition goals. Head over to factormeals.com slash glen50 and use code glen50 to get 50% off. That's code glen50 at factormeals.com slash glen50 to get 50% off. Remember, go to factormeals.com slash G-L-E-N-N-5-0 and use code GLEN50 to get 50% off today. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. During a tense hearing, the House Judiciary Committee, led by Congressman Jim Jordan, accused FBI Director Chris Wray of being partisan. Are they discrediting the FBI to help Trump in the January 6th investigation? Here's Glenn. The next issue I want to take on, friends, is this absurd clown car of a congressional hearing by Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, and other insurrectionists in Congress. It was a hearing at which FBI Director Chris Wray testified. It's a hearing of Jim Jordan's House Judiciary Committee that is pushing this absurd claim that the Department of Justice and the FBI have been weaponized against Republicans, against Donald Trump. Now, why is that an absurd claim? Well, we all know, we all saw with our own eyes that it was the Trump administration that weaponized the FBI and the Department of Justice against Donald Trump's enemies and to the advantage of Donald Trump and his criminal associates, guys like Bannon and Flynn and Stone. You know, it's absurd for Jim Jordan and other insurrectionists to say the FBI is being weaponized against Republicans. Friends, do you know how we know it's absurd? Well, FBI Director Chris Wray testified. Now, I am not a fan of FBI Director Chris Wray, but he testified under oath and he said the suggestion that he is biased against Republicans is, in Chris Wray's word, and I'm going to quote his testimony, insane. He said it's insane to make this allegation. He said, I'm a lifelong Republican. I was appointed first by George W. Bush back in the day. I was then appointed as FBI director by Donald Trump, a Republican president. I'm a lifelong Republican and it's insane 
that you're accusing me of weaponizing the FBI against Republicans. But friends, it's crystal clear why guys like Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, and others are trying to defund and decommission and destroy the FBI. There are two reasons. First, they've decided that they will forever be Donald Trump's lapdogs. So they're trying to protect Donald Trump from being held accountable for his crimes. In a real sense, this is Jim Jordan, Matt Gates, and others acting as accessories after the fact to Donald Trump's crimes. And they're doing it because they don't want to lose the support of Donald Trump's base. But here's the second reason. Friends, here's the other thing that's going on. The members of Congress who participated in the insurrection don't want to be held accountable for their own crimes. Right? Who is it that would hold them accountable? It's the FBI and the Department of Justice. That's why they're trying to destroy and defund the FBI. In a very real sense, it's the criminals trying to defund the very law enforcement agency that would hold the criminals accountable. This is not a mystery. Remember, friends, that six members of Congress requested pardons for the crimes they knew they had committed on and around January 6th? Remember that ugly assortment of representatives most of whom are still serving in Congress. You know, Andy Biggs, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Matt Gates, Scott, pardon me, Perry. And then there were others like Louis Gohmert and Mo Brooks who are no longer members of Congress, but they all knew they'd committed crimes and they requested pardons because they wanted to get away with those crimes. So of course, these clowns are trying to destroy the FBI. It's the FBI that can and hopefully will hold these clowns accountable for their crimes. You know, friends, the Republican Party is circling the drain. It's circling the drain. Okay, the last issue before we begin our deep dive into all things grand jury is the reporting that in recent days two new grand juries have been sworn in down in Georgia and one or perhaps both grand juries are involved in assessing the evidence they seem to be in the final throes of the grand jury investigation into the crimes of Trump and his criminal associates down in Georgia the crimes by which Trump solicited election fraud, the crimes by which Trump, Rudy Giuliani, and others tried to overturn the results of the Georgia election and corruptly, criminally, claim Donald Trump won in Georgia when, in fact, he lost. Two new regular grand juries were sworn in this past week. And I think we can all fairly ask the question, how many grand juries and how long does it take 
in Georgia to indict Trump and company for their crimes, particularly when, you know, years ago, we heard the crime being committed on a recorded phone call where Donald Trump said, look, just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner. That, friends, constitutes the crime of soliciting election fraud under Georgia state law. So why in the world does there seem to be this nonstop parade of grand juries in Georgia with no indictments yet having been handed down? Well, that's a damn good question, friends. I'm glad you asked it. Because now that takes us to our deep dive into the wild, wonderful world of grand juries. On the way, Glenn schools us on grand juries and why they're important. That's next on Justice Matters. Quoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Fulton County DA Fawny Willis has impaneled two grand juries in the Georgia election tampering probe. Glenn explains what a grand jury is and what the Fifth Amendment says about them. Okay, friends, let's do a quick Team Justice Law School class on grand juries. I'll try to take on questions like, are they really all that grand? And will a grand jury really indict a ham sandwich? You know, to which I ordinarily respond, yes, if the ham sandwich committed a crime. Now, I'm going to try to make this something of a schoolhouse rock type Team Justice Law School class on grand juries because, you know, the subject matter can be pretty dense, pretty dry, pretty dull. So we're going to try to move through it so that you feel like you have at least a basic understanding of the nuts and bolts of grand jury practice, what it's really all about. because. We hear about grand juries every day of the week in the reporting. So what is a grand jury really all about? Well, a grand jury is all about having citizens from the community, the community in which the crime was committed, having those citizens serve as a check and balance against the prosecutor's power by bringing in citizens from the community, impaneling them as a grand jury, and running the evidence by them and through them, and then asking if they believe there's enough evidence to charge one of their own, 
somebody from their community or at least somebody who committed a crime in their community if there's enough evidence to charge them with a felony crime. It is a check and a balance on prosecutorial overreach, prosecutorial abuse, prosecutorial misconduct. But let me add, friends, that it is a procedure, the grand jury procedure, that is largely within the exclusive control of the prosecutors. So grand jury proceedings are only as good as the ethics and honor and integrity of the prosecutors who are presenting the evidence to the grand jury. And, you know, let me hasten to add that in my 30 years as a prosecutor, my experience is that the overwhelming majority of prosecutors, certainly the ones I worked with, and I worked with a lot of them, because at the District of Columbia, United States Attorney's Office, where I worked for decades, it was a huge office. Lots of prosecutors, lots of turnover, lots of attrition. We had 325, 350 prosecutors at any one time, and I was there for decades. I worked with tons of prosecutors, and I can tell you firsthand that the overwhelming majority of them were honest and ethical and honorable. They conducted grand jury practices and procedures the way they should be conducted in a way that honored the Constitution, in a way that honored the rights of each and every defendant who might end up being indicted by the grand jury. Okay, let's do a very quick history of the grand jury, the origins of the grand jury. And there's no better place to start than the Fifth Amendment to the Constitution. The very first sentence of the Fifth Amendment reads, no person shall be held to answer for a capital or otherwise infamous crime unless on a presentment or indictment of a grand jury. Now friends, when you hear Fifth Amendment, you probably think of the more often quoted part of the Fifth Amendment that says nobody shall be compelled in any criminal case to be a witness against himself. I will add, or herself, to you know, make a common sense modern day update to the Fifth Amendment, right? Basically, when we hear Fifth Amendment, we think, oh, the right against self-incrimination. Yeah, that is the one that we talk about a lot because, you know, Donald Trump and others insist on pleading the Fifth Amendment, invoking the Fifth Amendment early and often in any number of proceedings. But it's also the Fifth Amendment that requires cases, felony cases, essentially, to be indicted by a grand jury. And that serves as a check on prosecutorial power. Okay, so now is there anything really so grand about the grand jury? Well, grand just comes from the French word meaning large. So basically they decided to call it a grand jury because it's larger than a regular jury, larger than a trial jury or what we call a pettit jury. We know that trial juries generally consist of 12 people. Now, they don't have to. You may not know this, but the Supreme Court has said that in a criminal case, a jury can consist of as few as six people, but the vast majority of jurisdictions have the practice of 
you know, seating a 12 person jury. Here's what I like. This is a little footnote, but um, I think it's a fun footnote. If you read the Supreme Court case that set the number as low as six and the Supreme Court ruled that that's still constitutional, you can be tried and convicted with a jury of only six people. They said six jurors is constitutional, but five jurors is unconstitutional. And here is a, um, an unusual moment of candor in, from the Supreme Court. They actually say in the opinion that, well, why is six constitutional and five unconstitutional? Well, they basically say, we had to draw the line somewhere. You know, not the most compelling constitutional analysis, but one that I think um, shows uh, a, an unusual moment of candor. Basically, well, we have no good reason. You know, there are no sound legal principles here, but look, six sounds like the minimum number, five sounds like too few, so we're gonna say five is unconstitutional. Well, trial juries usually consist of 12 people, but grand juries consist of 16 to 23 people. We're gonna talk more about those numbers in a minute. Okay, friends, so here's another question. What about the states? We know that the federal government, the Department of Justice, federal prosecutors use grand juries, federal grand juries. What about the states? Okay, excellent question, friends. And I'm not gonna get too much into the weeds of this. Um, this is actually something I spend a lot of time on when I'm teaching my criminal justice students at George Washington University, but there's something called the incorporation clause of the 14th Amendment to the Constitution. I know that's a mouthful, but what does that mean? Well, section one of the 14th Amendment reads in part, no state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges or immunities of the citizens of the United States, nor shall any state deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law, nor deny to any person within its jurisdiction the equal protection of the laws. Okay, what does that mean regarding grand juries? Well, over the years, the Supreme Court has decided that the rights we all have in the Bill of Rights, the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, are rights that the states must also honor. So for example, when the Fifth Amendment says you can't compel anybody to incriminate themselves, by operation of the incorporation clause of the 14th Amendment, the state court systems and the state law enforcement agencies and prosecution offices are also bound by that prohibition. The prohibition in the Fifth Amendment saying nobody can be compelled to incriminate themselves. Okay, I know all of this is a little nebulous, but stick with me here, friends. So the right, for example, to a jury trial, the right to a speedy trial, the right to counsel, the right to have a lawyer represent you in court. These are all rights that are granted to us 
by the Bill of Rights, right? The first 10 amendments, I'm referring specifically now to like the Fifth Amendment, the Sixth Amendment right to counsel. Those rights also apply to all of the state court systems because they run through the 14th Amendment. Except, wait for it friends, there is one right in the Bill of Rights that does not apply to the state courts. That is the right to be indicted by the grand jury. For whatever reason, the Supreme Court has said, that's not the kind of fundamental right that we're going to impose on the states. So the grand jury process is discretionary in the states. Not every state uses grand juries to indict people for felony offenses. So in some states, a prosecutor can just, you know, sign a piece of paper charging somebody with a felony and voila, you are now charged with a felony. Now there's some good news. The good news is that most states have grand jury procedures on their books. The bad news, at least from my perspective, because I continue to believe grand juries are good things. The bad news is only about half of the states actually use the grand jury procedures that are on their books. And in fact, only 22 states require the use of the grand jury. So roughly speaking, only about half of the states really use the grand jury system to investigate crime and indict folk. Now, let me just finish our Schoolhouse Rock portion of this Team Justice Law School class by observing that there are very different ways to use the grand jury. You can do what's called a summary grand jury presentation or you can do an exhaustive grand jury presentation. What are the differences between a summary grand jury presentation and an exhaustive or more inclusive grand jury presentation? Well, in a summary grand jury presentation, basically the prosecutors will take one witness, a law enforcement agent, a detective, an investigator, an officer, who knows about the whole case, the whole investigation, and they'll put that one person before the grand jury to testify about all of the evidence, and that will be the only evidence that the grand jury hears. Basically a whole bunch of hearsay information, hearsay is admissible, before the grand jury from one detective or agent who knows all about the case. That's a summary grand jury procedure. Now, there's also sort of a more inclusive or exhaustive grand jury process. That's where prosecutors will subpoena to the grand jury every flippin' witness that has anything relevant to say about the crimes being investigated and they will exhaustively investigate and present to the grand jury all of the information, all of the evidence that is relevant, the witnesses, the documents, the records, etc. Now, that's what I did as a federal prosecutor at the DC US Attorney's Office for decades. I think it's the best approach, the exhaustive approach for reasons that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But Let's now turn to some of the nuts and bolts of the grand jury practice. What does it look like when you're actually in that grand jury room? 
After the break, Glenn gives us a bird's eye view of what it's like to be on a grand jury. That's coming up next on Justice Matters. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows firsthand how VR training platforms like ForgeFX can help meet the demand for skilled workers. Anywhere you go look, there's going to be a shortage of welders. VR training can help welding students learn the skills they need to begin and advance in their career. The beauty of virtual reality is it simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Explore more stories like Alex's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. Whoa, sweet man cave. Thanks. Serious upgrade. How'd you pay for all this? I got a home equity line of credit from Figure. I was approved in five minutes and had funding in five days. Wow, that fast and easy? Yep, the application is 100% online, plus no out-of-pocket costs. Just fast access to the cash you need. How do I get started? Go to figure.com and get that serious upgrade. Figure Lending LLC, DBA Figure, Equal Opportunity Lender, NMLS 1717824. Terms and conditions apply. Visit figure.com for more information. For licensing information, go to www.nmlsconsumeraccess.org. A grand jury investigates criminal conduct and determines whether criminal charges should be brought. Glenn gives us a master class on how they are selected and how they decide on cases. Okay, friends, some of the basics. How many people sit as members of a grand jury? Between 16 and 23. So people from the community are summoned by the court, by the judges, to serve on the grand jury. The grand jury is actually an arm of the court. It's not an arm of the prosecutor's office. And in order to do business before the grand jury, in other words, in order to present witnesses, to present testimony, to present documents, there has to be a quorum. That is, there has to be at least 16 grand jurors who have shown up that day and are present and are prepared to do the grand jury's business. So 16 to 23 citizens are impaneled to sit as a grand jury, and at least 16 of them have to show up in order for us to begin presenting evidence to the grand jury. I can tell you, friends, do you know how many times I've been standing outside the grand jury room doors waiting for that 16th grand juror to show up? Because not all grand jurors show up for grand jury service every day. They should, but they don't. So there were times I was standing there with a witness, ready to go in the grand jury, but only 13 or 14 or 15 grand jurors had shown up by 9.30 in the morning, which is when the grand juries start taking evidence, start hearing from witnesses, and we would wait and wait. And as soon as that 16th grand juror arrived, we would begin presenting evidence or testimony to the grand jury. Okay, how many grand jurors does it take to indict a case? Well, 16 is the minimum. That's how many you have to have in the room to do business. Of those 16, 12 have to vote in favor of an indictment. So if 12 of the grand jurors vote to indict, that is what we call a true bill. If 11 or fewer vote to indict, that's what we call a no bill, and an indictment is not issued. So what happens if less than 12 grand jurors vote, so it's a no bill? Well, the case can be presented 
in the future to a new grand jury. You know, you can try to find additional evidence, subpoena additional witnesses or documents, present all of the evidence to a new grand jury, and try again and see if 12 of the 16 grand jurors vote in favor of an indictment. Okay, what is the evidentiary standard for the grand jurors to vote in favor of an indictment? They must be satisfied that there is probable cause that a crime was committed and that the target of the investigation is the one who committed it. It is a probable cause standard. Now, what does probable cause mean? Well, that's a burden of proof well below proof beyond a reasonable doubt, right? That is the highest evidentiary burden known to the law. Proof beyond a reasonable doubt is what is required to convict somebody of a crime at trial. So probable cause is well below that. Probable cause is also below a preponderance of the evidence more likely than not, 51%. Probable cause is somewhere lower than that. So it's probably somewhere just below 50% of the evidence. Probable cause to believe a crime was committed and the target of the investigation committed it. Okay, who is allowed in the grand jury room while business is being conducted? The grand jurors, obviously, the prosecutor, the testifying witness, and a court reporter or a grand jury reporter who takes down everything that is said in the grand jury. But I, as a prosecutor, when I went in there and I was presenting a civilian witness, I couldn't even bring an FBI agent or a homicide detective or an investigator in the room with me. That's not permitted. Okay, the grand jury is a secret proceeding by law. So let's take on the question of why should it be secret? I mean, wouldn't it be more transparent? Wouldn't it be, in some sense, better if it was open to public scrutiny so we could see whether the prosecutors were doing the right thing or abusing the process? Well, there's always an argument that transparency, more transparency, is generally a good thing. But here's why I think it makes sense for grand jury proceedings to be secret by law. First of all, it's to protect the witnesses. It is not easy to go into a grand jury and testify about the crimes of others. And the last thing anybody would want is for a witness to be retaliated against because that witness testified, that witness testified truthfully to the grand jury about the crimes of others. So one of the reasons these proceedings are secret is to protect the identity of the witnesses. And they are also secret because you generally don't want the target of the investigation to know that he or she is being investigated. Now, we're going to talk in a minute, friends, about the difference between a covert investigation in the grand jury, where nobody knows that crimes are being investigated, and an overt grand jury investigation where everybody knows, for example, regarding Donald Trump. Everybody knows he's being investigated. Generally, in covert investigations, we don't want people to know that their crimes are being investigated because then they could tamper with the witnesses. People that they know or suspect are witnesses against them. They could threaten them, harass them, or worse. 
if people knew they were being criminally investigated, they could destroy evidence. The target of the investigation could flee to avoid prosecution. Another good reason for grand jury investigations to remain secret, not everybody gets indicted. Maybe the prosecutors initiate an investigation into a target suspecting that person committed a crime, but maybe the prosecutors were wrong. Or maybe there ultimately wasn't enough evidence to charge the target of the investigation. You know, by keeping all of that secret, well then the person who was investigated but not indicted doesn't sort of have to suffer the consequences of the public hearing that they were the target of a grand jury investigation that can certainly damage someone's reputation. People will draw negative inferences if they hear, oh, you know what, so-and-so is being investigated by the grand jury. So that's another reason that these matters, I think, should remain secret. In case the person is never indicted, it helps avoid any reputational harm. What kind of evidence gets presented to the grand jury? Well, obviously witness testimony, documentary evidence that is subpoenaed, cell phone records, for example, cell site information, which is what tells prosecutors where a cell phone is at any given time, text messages, emails, I mean all manner of documents and records, photographs, including crime scene photographs, surveillance, video diagrams, expert testimony, autopsy reports, fingerprint reports, reports of forensic searches on computers and cell phones, and on and on and on. Pretty much anything can be introduced to the grand jury if it's relevant to the investigation or if it will have the tendency to lead to relevant evidence. It is a wide open investigation. There are not a lot of rules of evidence, for example, that apply in the grand jury. Hearsay, for example, which is not admissible at trial, it's perfectly admissible in a grand jury investigation. And frankly, not only do prosecutors introduce incriminating evidence or information, but they will also investigate potential defenses. So for example, in a murder case, if there's a possible alibi, we will subpoena any and all alibi witnesses who might be able to enlighten the prosecutors and the grand jury on whether the defendant in fact committed the crime or might have a viable alibi defense. Okay, let's talk about privileges. And by privileges, I mean the Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination, the attorney-client privilege, the doctor-patient privilege, the clergy-parishioner privilege, spousal privilege, executive privilege. You know, the law and the rulemakers have decided that there are certain things people shouldn't be forced to testify about. For example, if somebody says something in confidence to their lawyer in furtherance of the lawyer representing the client's interests, prosecutors shouldn't be able to force anybody to testify about those private communications between a client and a lawyer. You know, that would impair, if not destroy, the ability of 
the lawyer and the client to communicate openly, honestly, candidly with one another, right? It would interfere with a relationship that is very valuable and is protected in our system, the attorney-client relationship. Now, yes, there are certain ways to defeat or try to extinguish these various privileges, but here's the point I want to make about all of the privileges that I just listed. Those privileges remain alive and well in the grand jury. So somebody can refuse to answer a question if, for example, it would tend to incriminate them because they have a Fifth Amendment privilege against self-incrimination. Somebody can refuse to answer a question about what they discussed privately with their lawyer or what they discussed privately with their doctor that was in furtherance of diagnosis or treatment, etc., etc., because all of those privileges remain alive and well and viable in the grand jury unless there is some legal way to extinguish them or defeat them or overcome them. And sometimes there are, but that is beyond the scope of today's discussion. Now, let me just talk for a minute about the difference between a covert and an overt grand jury investigation. And then ultimately we're gonna use this as a springboard into talking about why in the hell do grand jury investigations seem to take so long, at least sometimes? And this is where we'll transition back to what's been going on down in Georgia, in Fulton County, in District Attorney Fawny Willis's investigation, which has been up and running for years. And since that dirty phone call Donald Trump placed to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger and committed a crime on that very call, which was recorded, we've heard it a thousand times over, where he solicited election fraud by saying, you know, just find me 11,780 votes and corruptly declare me the winner of the election in Georgia. I mean, that happened years ago. Why has it taken so long? Why have there been so many different grand juries involved in Georgia? Well, let's just start briefly with the difference between a covert investigation and an overt investigation. When you're doing a covert grand jury investigation, the target of the investigation doesn't know he or she is being investigated. You're trying to keep it under wraps because you don't wanna tip off the bad guy or the bad gal. So, as I say, they can destroy evidence, tamper with witnesses, flee the jurisdiction. So you do it covertly, quietly. You keep it under wraps, and then you spring the indictment on the defendant when you arrest him, right? What happens is the grand jury indicts someone during the covert investigation, so it never becomes public. We then go, we take the indictment to the court, we ask the judge for an arrest warrant to enforce the indictment and to bring the defendant into court to be arraigned on the indictment. The judge issues the arrest warrant and then the U.S. Marshals or the involved law enforcement agency goes out, arrests the defendant, brings the defendant to court to be arraigned. And in a perfect world, that's the first time the target, the defendant, knows that there has been a covert grand jury investigation looking into his crimes. 
And then there are overt investigations. And, you know, in the federal system, overt investigations are probably the significant majority of investigations. Why? Well, because if you're investigating, for example, Donald Trump, you know, you're subpoenaing Donald Trump's friends and associates and family members and political operatives and allies, and everybody knows that a grand jury investigation is being conducted. Even if the proceedings themselves are secret by law, right? So even if nobody knows what's being said behind those closed grand jury room doors, it is still an overt investigation. Everybody knows about it. And those kind of investigations, overt investigations, can take a very long time. Why? Well, sometimes it's just because they're big, they're unwieldy, they involve hundreds of witnesses and millions of pages of documents. It can take a really long time to investigate large conspiracy cases. But here's the other thing about overt investigations, or what we sometimes call proactive investigations. In other words, a case where nobody's been arrested. We are proactively investigating. If somebody's been arrested, then we are reactively investigating them, because if they've been arrested, then the case is on the court clock, and there are lots of deadlines that you know have to be obeyed but the proactive overt investigations can go on and on and on in the grand jury because there are no deadlines. There is no case in court, so there's no deadline being set by a judge. And prosecutors, in my experience, can tend to let their investigations drag on too long. I don't know if you've noticed this phenomenon, when it is a proactive, overt investigation, when there are no court deadlines that apply, prosecutors sometimes want to investigate the case, not just exhaustively, but to perfection. You know, trying to build the perfect beast, trying to build the bulletproof case. Let me tell you, friends, there's no such thing as a perfect bulletproof case or prosecution. But prosecutors have this urge, you know, this feeling like, oh, there's a little bit more evidence out there, you know, and we want to get that evidence before the grand jury, before we ever ask them to vote out an indictment. But you know, there's a time to move out, for gosh sakes. There's a time to indict. And prosecutors in my experience don't always strike the right balance between wanting to investigate the case well and thoroughly and exhaustively and the need to indict the case and get the dangerous person or people off the streets or at least get them charged in court and headed toward trial, get the prosecution ball rolling. Okay, against that backdrop, Let's hop back down to Georgia. There have been lots of grand juries in Georgia that have heard evidence about the Georgia state crimes of Trump and company. So you might remember that way back when 
there was a regular grand jury investigating Trump and company. Then there was a special grand jury investigating Trump and company. And now we are back to two regular grand juries investigating Trump and company. I mean, my goodness, what's going on? Well, Georgia has some unusual grand jury rules, practices, and procedures. I might even call them a bit funky. And here is why it seems to have taken so long for this case to come to fruition with indictments. And we know these indictments are now scheduled for August. And I'm going to be real brief about this, but as I've come to understand Georgia procedures and Georgia state law regarding grand jury practice, they have a regular grand jury. And a regular grand jury in Georgia can hear evidence, can take testimony, and can issue indictments. But the one thing the regular grand jury can't do, it's issue subpoenas and compel reluctant witnesses, difficult witnesses, non-cooperative witnesses, compel them to testify. The regular grand jury doesn't have subpoena power. So in order for a grand jury to have subpoena power down in Georgia, there has to be a special purpose grand jury impaneled. That grand jury can issue subpoenas, can compel unwilling witnesses to testify, but the special grand jury doesn't have the power to indict people. It can only make recommendations. It can issue a report regarding those recommendations. And then when the special purpose grand jury is done and it makes its recommendations, then you have to go back to a regular grand jury. And that is the grand jury that has the power to indict someone. This is not the way the feds do it. This is not the way most states do it. But this is the way it's done in Georgia. And that's part of what has taken so long, it seems, to get to the indicting part. So the special grand jury subpoenaed all the reluctant witnesses. They testified. The special grand jury issued a report, not public, made some recommendations. We have learned a little bit through some media interviews that it looks like the special purpose grand jury recommended that more than a dozen people be indicted. It looks like those people include Donald Trump. And then all of that information, that report, that recommendation is all going back to the regular grand juries that have just been impaneled this past week. And presumably we will see indictments in August. Why do I say August? Well, because District Attorney Fawny Willis did something that I found to be pretty remarkable, unprecedented in my practice. Of course, I've never practiced down in Georgia. She sent a letter to the court, to the judges in Fulton County saying, judges, please don't set any trials for the weeks of August 7 and August 14. Please don't set any trials and don't set any in-person hearings for those two weeks. Thank you. Well, friends, the natural inference is that is when the big old conspiracy indictment will be unsealed in Georgia, and there will be the need to run lots of people, lots of defendants through the courts 
to arraign them on the indictments. And that is why it seems District Attorney Willis asked the court to clear its decks, clear its dockets, so they can get all these prosecution balls rolling in court. And I, for one, am here for all of it. I can't wait to see what I suspect will be a big old conspiracy indictment. Feels like it's likely to be a RICO indictment under the Georgia State RICO laws of Trump and company for their attempted theft of the presidential election in Georgia. I am here for all of it. We are here for all of it. Because, you know, justice matters. Friends, as always, thank you for joining me on my long format, Weekend Justice Matters podcast. Of course, you can also find these audio podcasts during the week. You can find me over on my YouTube channel, Justice Matters, with Glenn Kirshner, where I post a legal analysis video every day. You can find me over on Twitter. I'm now on Threads, on Instagram, on Facebook, Glenn Kirshner 2, my name, and the number 2. And if you're interested in more formally supporting our all-volunteer efforts here at Justice Matters, feel free to come on over to patreon.com. You can sign up to become a patron. If you do, I'll send you some Team Justice and Justice Matters stickers and a personal handwritten note of thanks. And I want to thank the many of you who are supporting our efforts over on Patreon. And as always, friends, please stay safe. Please stay tuned. And I look forward to talking with you all again soon.